0: everybody, welcome back to Can You Hear Us? Before we continue with this episode, we wanted to acknowledge the challenging times people are facing, whether it be the current invasion of Ukraine, the ongoing refugee crisis in Afghanistan, or the Tigray conflict, and amongst so many others, we hope all those that are affected are as well and as safe as they can possibly be in these crazy times. Today's episode is in the lovely month of March. Hoping where everyone is, if you're in the northern Hemisphere at least, spring seems to be showing her beautiful face and that you're getting a daily dose of sunshine, especially for our vitamin D deficient folks like me. My name is Madeira and my pronouns are she and her.
1: And my name is Monica and my pronouns are she, her. Today we'll be continuing with our theme of activism by exploring the role of the medium. Last episode, Kavita mentioned the importance and strength of media in community mobilization by sharing her experience of the Arab Spring and how it served as a turning point to which forms of media could bring solidarity, visibility, and eventually political and social change. We have also mentioned in various episodes how BIPOC visibility is important for children and young adults to see in all aspects of life, whether it be in careers or even on their favorite TV show, in order for them to question and deconstruct biases. And when we say BIPOC visibility, we're not referring to tokenism, which is the practice of making only a perfunctory or symbolic effort to be inclusive to non-white heteronormative identities. Visibility means a fair and equal representation of identities that celebrate difference and express the diverse experiences of sharing that identity in our very global world. With this in mind, Can You Hear Us wanted to explore the intersection of media and representation through the lens of activism. As always, the Can You Hear Us team wants to acknowledge that we do not represent all women and femme of colour, and that we only speak from our experiences and perspectives, but we strive to include all women and femme of colour in our conversations, and we're always open and looking forward to all the feedback from our listeners. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Madeira. The floor is yours. Thanks, Monica. To start off our discussion,
0: it would be imprudent of us to not bring up a pivotal example of calling out the pervasive Western Eurocentric framing that entrenches our global subconscious within media. Beloved Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's 2009 Ted Talk on the danger of a single story. Despite being over 10 years old, Chimamanda's message concerning the importance of diversity in representation through literature is more relevant than ever today. With both the creation of the internet and the expansion of media in all its forms, information, people, places, and the stories we tell are more accessible than ever, thanks to a quick search on Google or even an account on Instagram. However, while the opportunity to diversify one's perspective may be more readily available, it does not mean that we naturally seek out those different points of view. Unconscious bias, beliefs, prejudice, Censorship, stigma, and even sometimes our location or identity within the world can influence what media we end up consuming regularly. Thus, the danger of a single story can be even more emphasized, as it has the potential to harm an individual or group of people due to its perpetuating stereotypes, false information, negating experiences, and ignoring power relations. It can even make thousands of years old knowledge systems seem not credible.
1: Absolutely, Madeira. And within the realm of media and journalism, having diverse representation is essential to stop a one-sided or biased narrative. Yet somehow we continue to miss the mark today. Data from the American Society of News Editors in 2016 revealed that Hispanic, Black and Asian women make up less than 5% of newsroom personnel at print and online news outlets in the U.S. Another study by McKinsey also reflects these findings with only 17% of entry-level jobs in corporate America being held by women of color. Further, according to Borealis Philanthropy's Racial Equity in Journalism Fund report, the most vulnerable to newsworthy events or public affairs are many times minorities, including black and indigenous people of color. Moreover, BIPOC-led media organizations who would, help fight this inequity receive only six percent of the 1.2 billion dollar in grants in journalism between 2009 and 2016. As both Kavita and Deepa mentioned in our last episode, sometimes challenging your comfort zone in terms of content consumed is key to continuous learning and growth and it allows one to have a more comprehensive view of a person or situation. Further, creating equitable and diverse media outlets help not only to democratize the content consumed by the average person, but also their perception of the world and the people around them. And luckily, we have an incredible guest today that has both professional and personal experience in this matter.
0: Yes, Monica, we are indeed so, so lucky. Today, Can You Hear Us is excited to welcome Adora Rama, CEO of Amaka Studio and fellow LSE alumna. Adora is a Nigerian-American creative strategist with experience in content creation, strategy, and business development. After working as a strategist at a reputable media advertising and design companies, including Vice and OK Africa, she created Amaka, a Pan-African digital media publisher for Pan-African women across the globe. Amaka, meaning beautiful in Igbo, has one core mission, to create a safe space showcase Pan-African women's stories, and empower women of African descent. It achieves this by offering nuanced and educational stories and impactful experiences to their audience. Their most notable interviews include the likes of Naomi Campbell, Zuzabini Tunzi, Ira Starr, and Nora Tagori. Needless to say, we are so happy that she made the time for us.
1: Absolutely. Adora, welcome to Can You Hear Us? And thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Hi everyone. Thank you Monica. Thank you Madeira. It's a pleasure to, to be on the show. I'm really looking forward to sharing more about Amaka and I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you.
1: No, thank you for making the time. You're so busy and we're so excited. Our first part is really heavily influenced and inspired by the TED talks we mentioned earlier, which is The Danger of a Single Story by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And so Based on her talk, which, as Madeira said, is about deconstructing biases by creating diverse stories and promoting them, we wanted to ask: What was the inspiration, or maybe the lack thereof, due to underrepresentation behind the creation of MACA Studio? Yes, thank you for that. There was
2: there was a lot that went into it. Mainly, the fact that there has been a significant Underrepresentation as well as misrepresentation of African women and our stories um, across the media landscape, Uh, whether it's, you know, hyperbolic representations or exaggerations of uh, our our livelihood or identities. um, There's also a lack of understanding when it comes to the nuanced experiences of various different uh, people across the continent. Obviously, the, the continent is vast, the diaspora is huge as well. And one of the main pressing concerns that I felt was that I think there was a more discussions on representation of maybe of blackness in perhaps more in the in the us centric side of things more maybe perhaps more in the uh, western world but i feel like there wasn't significant um, enough stories when it came to the lived experiences of of women on the continental perspective one of the main another frustration that i felt that it wasn't only kind of representation in front of the scenes also behind the scenes as well the uh, there's just kind of this lack of, of leadership or a lack of experiences when it comes to having women create our stories and having central agency and ownership over the, the production uh, of our stories or the distribution of our stories as well. Something I'm very passionate about is the creative value chain. And what that usually entails is the various different steps of perhaps a finished product of media, so is that production uh, of media, the uh, distribution, amplification, and representation of media. And there, and I felt that there, was, there wasn't there was enough women in that space who were involved in not only production, writing, development of the stories, or distribution of that, or amplification of that, resulting in poor representation, misrepresentation of women as well. So essentially, looking at that, I wanted to be able to create Amaka 360 digital media entity that aims to address the concerns around application and awareness of our stories, but also highlighting the women who are involved in the various different creative value chain sect- sectors within the overall production and, and dissemination of our stories. So I would definitely say that was the, those were like the, the main concerns that I felt and something that we feel is, is a great importance in terms of making sure there's a greater understanding of our experiences and the intersections of our experiences as well across the board as well.
1: well. Thank you for answering that so comprehensively and with so much detail. It was really inspirational to hear you talk, especially when you mentioned about how there's often a lack in leadership for women to either create or be given a platform to share their stories. And yeah. as you've mentioned, and the TED Talk mentions, and hopefully what we try to push out and Can You Hear Us is the importance of stories, of sharing experiences. Maybe we don't all look alike or we don't all have the same heritage, but there's definitely things that connect us and our experiences. And it's so important for women to feel supported and to have these maybe networks, if you can call them, or just stories that support them. So. That was really lovely. Thank you. Thank you. So you mentioned, obviously, how big the continent of Africa is. And not only that, just the diaspora is huge as well. And so, you know, you are creating content with and for a massive audience and an incredibly important audience as well. So I would like to ask you for our listeners who may not know or who are unaware of the concept of Pan-Africanism, how would you personally define Pan-Africanism and what it constitutes? Yeah.
2: Thank you. That's a really big question, because obviously there's been a lot of academic studies on what Pan-Africanism is. It's very in-depth, and I would say perhaps a lot of people have various different opinions on it, but I would definitely say Pan-Africanism is essentially the shared Indian experience of people of uh, perhaps African descent or African heritage um, wanting to have a kind of this unified collective mission or a discussion on the uh, on the progression and advancement and development of all people of African heritage across across the globe obviously aiming to essentially develop kind of issues the essentially the issues that we've experienced as a people whether obviously it's through slavery colonialism imperialism across the board and looking at finding ways to, to advance our, I guess, the collective consciousness or experiences, you know, to have, I guess, to a better, greater future. I would also extend that Pan-Africanism, I guess, definition to to make sure that it's inclusive of, of experiences of women or non-binary people, LGBTQ plus community as well. I think a lot of discussions around either Pan Africanism or or even if you go to black nationalism as well, it's very, I would definitely say very male skewed or heteronormative, or it doesn't really ha- inc- isn't very inclusive of different intersections of um of whether it's Africanist or Black identity. Well, and so that's also partly why I create Amaka as well is to be able to highlight um, the, the women or the marginalized genders experiences and who have contributed to the definition of, of pan-Africanism as well, uh, and making sure that we're highlighting the nuances of our experiences and the fact that, yes, maybe I'm African, I'm black as well, and, and I'd be marginalized because of those identities, but also because I'm a woman um, as well, or I'm, I'm or I'm dark-skinned as well, or perhaps even from a, as going as down to even tribalism as well. How might I be marginalized because of my tribe? I would definitely say, I would also love to expand on that definition at times as well, just making sure that we're representative across the board of all people, all people of African heritage and descent and how we can be inclusive and how we're advancing everybody to a greater path forward to eradicate issues around inequality or you know marginalization across the, the board as
0: well. it really speaks to the main issue of wanting to consolidate shared experience and the power behind yeah. con- having shared experience and how it almost builds solidarity and you know in my mind, I think of not only being African but also blackness and you know we hear this all the time about not necessarily being a monolith like it is a monolith like yeah, you know there are so many different, Looks and experiences. Yet, I think that in a lot, in a lot of ways, coloniality, uh, white supremacy seems to kind of try to categorize and take that away. When it really, really actually takes away from the people, it makes them more divisive. It causes conflict, which I'm, you already know clearly. And so, you know yeah. that that sort of resistance is something that. I really want to question, and I'm, I'm asking this because as you, as a dark-skinned Nigerian Black woman, and also as me, as being Native and Indigenous and Black, like, obviously this idea of wanting to solidify shared experience makes sense. It derives itself from just a sense of unity. But why why is there resistance to this? Do, just to clarify,
2: do you mean resistance in terms of resistance against Pan-Africanism or? Yeah, yeah, resistance
0: towards okay. Pan-Africanism, yes.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, and I think it's not only resistance from perhaps non-Africans or people um, or people who come from African heritage. I also noticed right. that there has been resistance against Pan-Africanism within the community as well. I think for a number of reasons, one, again, Yes, we do have this sh- kind of perhaps shared experience of, of coloniality, um, you know, subjugation as a result of white supremacy, Eurocentrism as well, and how that appeeds on various different cultures, especially in the global south as well. But I think one of that is the fact that because it's so nuanced and because culturally we're so different, some people may have resistance around against the fact that we why is it reduced to a shared experience when we have various different, you know, backgrounds and cultures as well within various different African identities? As well, like my experience from um, an African-American experience is very different from perhaps a, a Nigerian um, experience who's born and raised on the continent as well, and who have various different r- relationships with uh, whether it's the state or or police or economic and social differences. Although I would argue, I would say there are perhaps certain closeness and relationships when it comes to heavy militarization and colonialism in Nigeria as well, with the grass and stars. And also kind of tying that back to as also Black Lives Matter, again, a really strong police brutality against Black and brown communities as well. And how I, how I would say militarization and, and colonialism and police brutality, I would say have been exported around the world as well as anti-blackness has been explored around the world as well but i would definitely say perhaps for non-africans who 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 may be threatened by this as well is I think even from an economic standpoint, content is very young uh, that we are have we're essentially growing at an a, a extreme rate when it comes to youth penetration or penetration of the internet uh, digital infrastructure and landscape as well. If we were all to mobilize, if we were all to a, be able to you know have an extreme. Sense of perhaps growth or wealth, I think that mm. kind of threatens a lot of existing social and economic powers, be in yeah. the Western world as well. And I think that in itself poses a lot of potential issues, potential risks as well. I think that also boils down to again, we talk about white supremacy as well. People have feel that there's that inherently black and brown people are not or not civilized or need the role of uh, Western civilization in order to to integrate better into the global economy or to be a real legitimate player in the global economy as well. And I feel like a lot of people inherently feel that the kind of global order is tied to more of like the Western world as well. And therefore everyone should kind of follow that. So I, I think there's just these kind of various different tensions of that. If we were to kind of mobilize and to grow, where does that leave current, powerful players i think they it had to kind of go to a lot of questions around okay people always want to be able to retain their sense of power nobody wants to be able to right. to relinquish that sense of power and mm-hmm. i think if you've grown up to inherently feel that i i have the right to overpower various different communities or accumulate a sense of wealth and then once you have to challenge that i think for a lot of global systems who have thrived on that imbalance of power, results in a lot of issues down the line for them. In that regard, as well, so I think it kind of boils down to economics, social issues, morality as well around the resistance towards that, which I think can be quite frightening for people who've, who've established powers for years, thousands of years, yeah. essentially. So, right.
0: yeah. I think th- it makes me think of issues of gender and toxic masculinity like you've said yes Um, and it's it's kind of a similar dynamic in itself is probably embedded in the same conversation that you're having and I think I think it can be really difficult to it's just complicated and I think we you know I think especially those that are more marginalized, we accept that it is complicated and that we work to make that bridge. But I think from the outside world and those that do have power, they would not do that because it would be a waste of money, like you're saying. (laughs) Like it would be be a waste of time and resources. And I think that that is exactly the issue at hand. And I guess, I uh, so in the same kind of token of how we're talking about this resistance and you've named so many different entry points for this I was also wanting to kind of narrow it down more specifically to Maka and like how how does this kind of resistance uh, you know you are a young African woman you're a dark-skinned you're a young CEO you're living in London which already has like its implications I'm you do live in London right or do you move back and forth yes maybe, yes I, but, okay. I do live in London all right yeah. Which already has some implications of how it works as an imperial, like as a long time imperialist kind of empire, a center of imperialism, if you will. And I'm sure you get resistance about the kind of work that you're doing. So, yeah, I just would love to hear how does this form of resistance, especially when it comes to wanting to give these perspectives Um, express the experiences of other people provide a different avenue to look at an issue at hand how does it manifest in a maca yeah that's a good question in terms of resistance
2: i mean i would definitely say people i think the idea of having a a women-led platform a platform that focuses on on specific issues pertaining to our experiences can seem a, a little threatening because i think a lot of Well, I don't say a lot of people, perhaps more men, (laughs) um, feel that you know it's kind of challenging a certain world order um, when it comes to the role of women. Women were perceived as we're we're not meant to quote unquote have a voice, or we're not meant to be in certain leadership spaces, we're not meant to be able to have like controversial views or views that can really tackle tradition and I would definitely say a lot of the topics that we speak about I think would definitely be deemed as quite controversial you know whether it's you know whether it's talking about sex or whether again talking about our experiences in in leadership or or sexism mm. or misogyny yeah. or, or even boiling it down to not even just misogyny as a whole but also misogyny within African communities or within black communities as well i think there's a lot of resistance to to essentially having or or being more specific in our experiences because it's not so it's, like we said, it's not a monolith. It's not this one size fits all. It's, it's not just because I'm, I'm a black woman, doesn't mean my oppressor could be a, a black man and my oppressor could be and has been to a lot of women Um, black men have been able to 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 do that or sort their form of power as well as white men as well so boil it down to again black cisgender women or black straight women can also be oppressive to people who are part of the LGBTQ community as well so and wanting to be able to highlight those differences and nuances as well could threaten a lot of people mainly because and i guess it makes you nobody wants to be called an oppressor <laughs> i guess but yeah. nobody wants to to, <laughs> to 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 be told that you're contributing to a, a dangerous system that has that can further sideline and marginalize certain identities as well so i think the fact that we do that can be seen as quite disruptive a bit provocative at times but i think it's much needed i don't know I, i've definitely had a bit of I guess maybe from older generations, some people who have kind of said we are are uncomfortable that we speak very openly about these different topics and experiences, especially when it comes to people in the LGBTQ community as well. And and that, that, oh, that's not inherently an African thing, which is completely incorrect. And the idea of wanting to be as inclusive as possible makes people feel quite uncomfortable around that as well. So I, I feel like I've definitely gotten that resistance. I've definitely gotten resistance for being young, a black and female, mainly for other reasons around like whether it's experience or, or not even experience. I think it's just this implicit bias that a young black female shouldn't be in a, such a strong position of power. And that's reserved for maybe someone more quote unquote credible. And when I mean credible, it usually means a man or older man. (laughs) So I I would, I definitely say that the, there has been existence, but I also definitely say that there's been a lot of solidarity of rallying around this platform. So I get Good. messages quite frequently around from people who say, I've never seen a platform like this, who highlights again, again the nuances of Africanness as well. I feel really included. And, and also, you know, and also we don't always get it right hundred percent, we're a new platform. And so we're all, always trying to continuously develop the platform with our community in mind, through feedback, through data, constantly iterating and redefining our editorial stories as well but I would definitely say people understand the importance of new media and the importance of of amplifying and essentially I I, maybe not even diversifying we have this weird issue we have this issue within the company that we don't like to say we're diversifying media because that inherently says that we, we don't exist, or women don't exist, or marginalized identities don't exist. But they've all we yeah. always have been there, but we just haven't had the platform to amplify things. Every we've always had these opinions and experiences. So what are we diversifying per se? It's more of amplification, and how we want to be able to make sure that we're contributing to the discussion and we're amplifying to discussion and already existing perspectives and opinions it's just that we haven't been past the microphone
1: right
0: it sounds it sounds very it's a business strategy you're increasing amplification. you're increasing the amount of what's already out there to be promoted in a more equitable way which mm-hmm. I think is you're right now now that I'm like thinking I'm like yeah maybe diverse, diversifying isn't the right language that we should be using when we're talking about trying to add more voices to the table the, that theoretical table yes. that, he, that yeah. everybody wants to listen to
2: that right. in itself is a threat you know amplifying mm-hmm. because it's essentially you're we're not meant to be in that space where right. a lot of voices have been silenced or subjugated but when you're amplifying that is a inherently political in itself and inherently a form of resistance which i think a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with
0: yeah i mean it's like an advocate role um, you know, that I always think of the different lines of activism, and you can, you can be an advocate, you can be an amplifier. And I think sometimes what, or you could just be within the trenches, if you speak of what it yeah. means to put your body and your mind on the line. And I think media yeah. organizations have an interesting dynamic within that, because you amplify, but you are also in theory, putting yourself on the line for what you're trying to get across. And that has limitations. Right. Um,
1: for sure, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to pop in and say I, I really think that this differentiation between diversification or di- diversifying and amplifying is incredibly important because you know last week we were doing it was International Women's Day and we decided to showcase some quotes and one came to mind as you were speaking which was um, she's a Taiwanese author and she said it's it's strange that there are some things people won't change with tradition as an excuse. Don't quote me 100% on it, but that was the gist of what she wrote. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that. I think, like you said very well, Adora, when you're amplifying, you're not only letting people know that it was already there and it was already an issue. It's also removing that maybe excuse that they tell themselves. It's like, we have to confront it now head on, right? It's not yeah, something you exactly. it didn't pop out of nowhere. It doesn't, you know, exactly. it has an explanation, it has a history. And in this case, it's a living, breathing human being.
2: Yeah, and nothing exists in isolation as well. Like you said, everything is tied to, to something, to, to history, um, to various different um, events. And they've always been there, but they've just never been able to have that kind of platform to be able to highlight that and amplify that as well. Mm
0: just has gives me it leaves me pondering just how you know how this will continue to be an issue the more and more globalization mm-hmm. kind of takes in. and i mean we're seeing it even with the pandemic and exactly. all that, that's changing with resources and value chain and shifting a little bit to um to like kind of our next part of when we're talking about the importance of representation the importance of amplifying BIPO folks that are in media we are talking about telling these experiences, but I also really think, my personally, is that the representation of BIPOC folks, in particular women um, and uh, non-hetero um, people of color, is that it is visual. It's like seeing these women FMs and their different mm-hmm. shades and their different textures, yeah. hair textures, facial features, body shapes, those with disabilities, those that are not. So when we're thinking in that line, how important is representing the phenotypic diversity of Pan-African women mm-hmm. in a Maka studio to you?
2: Oh, that's, it's super, super important. It's just one of the main things I'm, I'm very, very conscious of, especially we're in the business of image making as well. We're, we're in the business of, again, um, re- representation. So discussion, we have these internal discussions around, um, featurism, uh, texturism um, as well. And and the responsibility that we have as a media platform to be able to, to challenge um, Eurocentric views of, uh, of beauty, but also kind of challenging those superficial representations of quote-unquote diversity, but maybe it's showing someone that is more palatable to the white gaze or to the male gaze even as well. And so we... I see that as important in order to be able to highlight various different women of various different sizes um, of either background as well, features as well. And I guess in that in itself is a is a form of it's in a form of resistance. But I would also say it's just wanting to be able to showcase the reality of things like that we've always um, existed and that it should be normalized and. And highlighted as a, a, a clear representation of not only um, Africanness, of Blackness as well. And so right. I think for us, and Amaka, uh, it's a huge, huge importance for us as well, highlighting people who may not, who go against the grain of uh, what is uh, what is palatable or what is digestible um, in media. Um, and it's quite frankly, it's if we highlight that, ju- if we just highlight people who are palatable and um, digestible it's not true it's not reality it's it's just a completely it's a completely exaggerated form of, of representation that appeals to more of a, a a western audience or not just a western audience an audience that has been influenced significantly by western ideals of of yeah. beauty and, and tolerance as well so to, to me it's not it doesn't even feel like it is resistance, but to me it's more of like I'm just showing people as they are. And I guess also we I know i I I guess also like I can't remember where I've read this, but being being black or I guess being a black, for example, is inherently political. Being anything that's against the grain is inherently political because a it has been politicized but b because we just haven't been given the space to exist in in certain certain environments as well so i I would definitely say yes that i have that that's a huge huge responsibility but also i think it's important to know that we're always all influenced by what's deemed as acceptable as well i have to check a lot of my implicit biases as well like sometimes why is it that sometimes you people maybe inherently gravitate towards someone who's maybe on more on the slender side or for example and you kind of have to check yourself oh, why did I why am I gravitating towards that and it's a I think it's constant on learning as well I had to constantly unlearn as a as you know I, like like I said a black dark-skinned woman as well and constantly unlearning certain things that were fed to me as a young person and just making sure that I'm not repeating that or I'm not exporting that through through our media and representation as well and I think it's important to highlight our implicit biases in order to in order to make sure that you're you have that you're taking responsibility and holding yourself accountable
0: yeah no we're yeah. all implicated we're all yeah. implicated in that and we all have internalized Um, privilege and to make sure that we're not doing that, (laughs) to make sure it's, a you're right, constant work. I think that us as being Black and Indigenous people of color, we, I would like to say that we inherently are always kind of doing that just because we're either code switching or, you know, trying to, trying to balance our own safety, (laughs) if you will, with what is acceptable. And that sometimes recognizing that, the kinds of harm that would come to us for taking, you know, representing people as they are, or so to speak, or can also be damaging to us physically, mentally.
1: I wanted to digress a bit and just touch on the implicit biases that you mentioned and Mm -hmm. asking, like we mentioned before, you're, you're a young CEO, you you're operating a working company. That is fantastic. As we've said before as well. For any young aspiring CEOs of color and women of color as well, how do you keep those implicit biases in check in as a leader if you will like do you have any recommendations or any any tips that can help essentially is my question
2: Oh that's that's a great question because um, I'm also learning that as well myself. I think definitely um, I I love reading. I feel like I'm an academic at heart. I feel like, you know, LSC is always about those um, you know, academic papers and discussions on things. So for me, I think reading. And making sure you have an understanding a- around the, the issues when it comes to, I, I would say, for example, the issues that a lot of female entrepreneurs experience or Black entrepreneurs experience as well. And understanding those kind of the dynamics in the kind of workspaces, whether it's in business meetings, whether it's in pitch meetings or board meetings as well. I would definitely say, kind of having that. If you're, if again, if you're interested in that, but I think just having that world knowledge and reading around those dynamics, it really helps. In terms of, I guess, trying to to make sure my implicit biases and how make I'm not, what's the word or I'm not kind of uh, repeating or, or um, exacerbating all, um, existing issues is obviously making sure that I'm having a more diverse hiring process as well. And, and making sure that I'm, we're bringing in people of, of various different backgrounds as well, who not only, who not, I don't want somebody who just only supports a worldview, but can challenge a worldview world as well. And making sure that we're having various different opinions and perspectives as well. I definitely would say it's a, it's a work in progress, but if you're actively and having, you're actively having that dedicated focus on making sure that you're including people from various different backgrounds to you with different talent, uh, world worldviews and perspectives to you as well, it would definitely change your perspective on the ways you're doing business, the ways that you're conducting yourself as a, as a business leader as well. In terms of in terms of how other people's implicit biases, how they project onto you, because I've definitely had that experience and it's definitely not, it's not pleasant when you experience that. But I think it's just remembering that A, people are projecting, people are projecting things quite frequently in terms of how they view you based on their perspective and based on their worldviews or their insecurities, etc. But also I think just making sure you're grounded within yourself having a really good uh, board advisors or team or people around you who who are uh, validating, I guess your business model or you, or, or who have a very strong understanding of what you're doing and how you conduct yourself as well and who believe in you as well. There are gonna be a lot of people Who don't believe in you especially if you're black and female and young but i think it's making sure that you have that that unwavering belief in that and having people who have that unwavering belief in you and making sure you're finding people who um and selecting people who who understand the the greater mission and vision it really helps you know move things forward as a business person would also help you deal with those kind of negative experiences from people as well so I would definitely say those were kind of like the three things that I've navigated and have used to, and tools to help me be a better business leader in person. I'm still obviously a work in progress, still learning, digesting quite a lot of information as well in order to make sure that we're not, we're, we're not repeating past mistakes from other media entities or other business entities as well. We're di- disrupting. We are creating a better space for growth and innovation.
1: The average age in, in Africa, if I'm not mistaken right now, is 19, which is incredibly young. And I just hope that, that you can spread this message, maybe not in our podcast, <laughs> maybe just in general through your work in America. But I'm so excited to see what the future generation of Black women leaders have to offer to the world, because I think it's enormous what they can do. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited for that (laughs) and I'm excited that I also got to listen to such sound advice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you. Now, of course, our next question is also based on some statistics, which is unfortunately the same McKinsey report that we mentioned in the introduction also shows us that women in the workplace lose at every stage of the corporate ladder in the U.S. And so by the time that women are ex- executives, there's only 4% of CEOs being women of color, which kind of goes to my digression before. But I, we wanted to ask you from your own experience, do you think that this is also repl- reflective of the media sector? Oh, yes,
2: 100%. I would definitely say I have not seen a lot of... of I've not seen a lot of women, let alone you know, BIPOC women as well, in the media landscape, I know, it's, but I would say a handful. Um, I would even extend that even to the media marketing agencies as well, at the executive level, it's, I have not, it's very rare, you know, I, obviously, if you're familiar with Blabity, the founder of Blabity, uh, Morgan Bond, um, Black woman as well, she's CEO, founder of the shade room is black women as well but i, I would definitely say it's there, there is a i would definitely say there's an extreme shortage of of women of color and particularly black women in these media spaces as well if we also look at it from a continental africa perspective i think it's about five percent of female CEOs in Africa it's a five percent um and that's not that's that's a, on the broad Levels, so I can only imagine a media and creative space that's very, very probably significantly low, which obviously a pressing concern um, as well. And I think also further exacerbates the issues that I mentioned in, in terms of creative value chain is if you're not having people in behind the scenes developing strategy or business models who reflect various different experiences, you're going to see that representation in, in terms of final media products, for example, because you're not having people in those spaces as well. So I guess just to answer your question, it's been quite rare to see that. I think there's strong dedication to obviously expanding on that, but I haven't really, in my personal experience, I haven't really seen that. There have been quite a few people that I can lean on who hold executive positions in the media space.
1: I mean, it absolutely shows the fact that Maybe not diversification, since we're talking about amplification, but amplification of people is both in media, if you will. It's not just the, pro- the end product, whether it's the film or the commercial or the book, but it's also everyone behind it, right, to create these and corporations that uplift minorities or are created by minorities for minorities. All of that, and so in that, you know, in that respect, if we're looking at both sides. If you have the choice of naming three steps that media organizations should take to significantly improve this underrepresentation of bike BIPOC women, both in the media and in, in the media sector, if that makes sense, what would those be?
2: In order to essentially increase representation, I would definitely say there's quite a number, but I would say probably the top three. I'm, I'm going to extend this a little bit, but I would definitely say one of the top things that I feel like would help further amplify Black media organizations as well support them better. I think it's more investment in Black media organizations. Well, recently, for uh, example, Group M, which is a really big advertising company as well, has recently pledged about $75 million in, in Black-owned media entities as well. And for top clients to be able to, to invest at least about 2% of, uh, of their of their earnings into black owned media entities as well. So I would say, in terms of from a business perspective, there needs to be stronger investment from advertisers um, or various different entities, or we're looking at VC routes um, as well to invest more in black owned media entities. Because once you be once you're able to empower them from an economic perspective, I think you'll be able to grow, train, develop, and have more black female leaders in this media landscape as well so i would say one of the main things is kind of investment as well from an external points perspective internally look at your executive level as, as well like who is in your c-suite level if we if you don't have women in that level then obviously i think you're doing something completely wrong i think making sure that they are in those executive levels are be, are able to again further train, further recruit, and have more of a diverse learning and understanding of the business as well is really important in order to be able to have that. So I think it shouldn't be, it shouldn't just be across the board, but I think it's very, very important to see who's in your C-suite level and how are you making progress in that regard. I would definitely say, I think, I'm just trying to think, a third way of how to increase representation or diversity as well. I think probably again, it's probably skills development. I'm very big on education and development and training as well, and that's we obviously a startup, so that's something that we're we're working on, and hopefully as we grow, I want that to be a very clear factor for us is making sure that you're investing not only in in your team to be, but also externally as well. Maybe it's is that maybe working with universities, is that working with various different, I don't know, in terms of vocational training or different organizations as well to expand on that. Education is such a big part of the creative value chain as well, in order to be able to have people not only develop their skills, but also be able to to for, for mobility in their career, to move up in their career and to have stronger leadership positions as well. So I would say as a media entity is kind of training internally and making sure that you're you're providing opportunities across the board. I try to do that in a small way as well. Like we're, we're such a small team, but I want to make sure everybody has an understanding of the business across the board, whether you're a, a salesperson, but you maybe want to know a bit more about the creative side or marketing side. Maybe you can be on a shoot to understand that better. Or maybe if you're a writer, but wanting to understand a bit more about the business side of the, of the company as well, being more involved in discussions around the financial model or the business development strategy of of AMACA as well and making sure everyone across the board has some sort of understanding and that's transferable skills as well I don't expect everyone to be to stay with AMACA for from the long term but I do hope that they'll be able to use those skills that they've been able to, to acquire and to transfer that in their maybe the new projects or new jobs or Or maybe they want to build a new company as well. I have somebody who used to work with us and she just started a new company as well. And she told me that everything that she's learned, she's been able to transfer and and develop in her company as well. And she was in a junior role as well so i would definitely say those are the main things is kind of investment in black home media seeing making sure the c-suite level it has women and not just not just women women of color and not just women of color i would say black women as well i think that's really important and also training and education as well
0: yeah so for all of our ceo listeners that would like to go into media let me also just say that you should be paying those that are giving you this information freely. So if you are yes. have you if you've just learned pay, a lot from Adora, us. pay pay her pay by me. going and looking at Mac <laughs> Studio, please. <laughs> <laughs> because the, this was just free labor that we have just done for you. It so is free you. labor. <laughs> so th- thank you, Adora.
2: I'll send all my yeah, videos. we will send we
0: will send out our details for everyone to take part <laughs> in including ourselves
1: yeah absolutely because, so yeah I'm... I mean go ahead Medea, but I was just gonna say this was fabulous I don't <laughs> I wish all companies ran like a <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean you're truly doing a phenomenal job if we're allowed to gush a bit more thank you oh my gosh I'm
2: sitting there with all these compliments I appreciate it
1: <laughs>
2: I still like
0: learn I'm
2: still learning, you know, like, you know, there's some days I'm like, oh, I could be doing better. We need to do this and that. So it, it really feels it's really helpful and positive to have this uh, overwhelming positive response. So I really, really do appreciate it. You have no idea. Thank you.
0: Oh, hey, this is, this is beauty of our jobs. This is what we want, we want to do in the first place. And you're, you're, you know, you're just representing exactly who we want to make sure they know that they are doing an amazing, wonderful job. Thank you. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to shift us a little bit more towards our theme (laughs) of this talk, which is activism. And for us, and and this is our own opinion, obviously, we really think that the work that you have accomplished with Amaka by creating a platform for those that are in the diaspora, that are of African descent, for those that are on the continent, for African women this is inherently an, a form of activism for as much as we say that we're amplifying the voices, it's going against the norm, what is considered, quote unquote, the norm within media. And and it shouldn't be the norm, but it is what it is. And we just wanted to ask, like, would you ever consider yourself an activist or would you even use the word activist to describe what you've accomplished? This has come up a lot in our conversations surrounding activism, and especially with BIPOC women, because, you know, part of the, work that we do is inherently personal because it's dealing with our identities, right? So, you know, sometimes that word of using activist feels a little daunting maybe. Um, so yeah, do you consider yourself an activist?
2: Oh, yeah, that's so, uh, thank you for that question. I, I it's a of tricky. I, I personally wouldn't call myself an activist. I, I think because, I don't know i think maybe because i'm in the business world and sometimes Mm. i i just think those two conflict a lot kind of wanting to go against the grain but sometimes having to appease certain things in order to get to a certain point of growth where you can disrupt things completely i i think it's it's a bit it's a bit challenging for me i I feel uncomfortable using that word tied to me because Mm. although yes i do think we we are doing the work and working on that, but I do think, I guess in my opinion, I feel like an a- activist is, I don't know, a, a hundred. I, it's, it's a bit challenging for me, I would definitely say. I think because I'm in the business space and the commercialized space as well. And I, I would definitely say, you know, I'm working in this capitalist framework as well. So it, it can be, it can be a bit challenging to disrupt everything, And I I guess maybe it's a limited um, understanding of what an activist is, I'm not sure. But I I just do feel like I'm constrained to certain things. Well, as opposed to an activist, I think, in order for us to do the work, you kind of have to be very, very against, I, I don't know, I would say very, very disruptive to a point of maybe even explosive in a way, whereas I feel like I'm trying to enact change maybe kind of trying to work with the system to a point where we can disrupt the system at that point as well. It's it's a bit it's a bit challenging. I don't I don't know. I, I feel like because I respect the work of activists so much, I feel so comfortable calling myself an activist.
0: If right. that make sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. I mean we're I within the sector we're like us personally, we're within the sector of international development. And yeah. the implications of being part of international development of one that is has a legacy of anti-blackness, of white supremacy, of imperialism, you know, and to say that we want to take part in that and change it is kind of hard to do because, you know, inherently there is a view of we should just stop it, (laughs) right? Like, yeah, right. And so when you're working in those spaces, I think it's really, I, I had, I got advice one day about, um, you know, living in contradiction, that it is okay, that it's actually political and like important that you're living in contradiction, that you are constantly mm-hmm, questioning mm-hmm. the things that you do. And I think, I think that that's what you're trying to say. So uh, at least that's where I'm getting out of it. And so maybe, maybe yeah. shifting, you know, a little bit of when we're talking about activism, maybe talking about it as change. Yeah. Maybe we'll frame it more as like the statistics that we're seeing with diversity in media outlets, and then also with how the average consumer or average consumer, I say that in quotes, but the average Western consumer and their wants and needs for our presentation and what that looks like. Maybe, maybe we should look at more as, as the in- institutions themselves. So do you yes. think that this kind of change, it more likely comes from within these media institutions or outside would it come more likely from within or outside of them
2: i personally think outside i think um Mm. i i think consumers um consumers of media are the ones who have drastically shifted the way i guess media is going i think a lot of people have who are not within the institution of media, are always the ones questioning, always the ones holding media institutions accountable, and, you know, utilizing the power of, of, you know, social media, these new media platforms as well. I, I really strongly believe it comes from outside institutions, mainly because I personally think the role of media institutions is to serve people, mm-hmm. making sure you're highlighting um, stories, issues that reflect people's experiences. And I think the, the reason, great, I guess, the greatest trust in media has definitely come from people who are not in media institutions or who have been frustrated by mm-hmm. the, the representation of, of media or representation of marginalized people in those specific spaces. So I, I personally think the change has come from outside even if we go to the black lives matter was um I, I think in 2021 things were very much so amplified as well i think there was viral discussion on mm-hmm. on media entities or companies showing i think it was was it called pull up yeah it's pull up, up for things. change they have an stuff. instagram account yeah. too yeah. pull up for change yeah yes yes so i'm just t- uh, basically holding a lot companies accountable, like how many people of color are in your leadership position or in your company? What's the, you know, what are the pay gaps? How are you addressing certain issues? How are you contributing to racism as a company as well? You can you can say, I'm going to be part of Black History Month and do a campaign around International Women's Month. But if you're not actually doing the change internally, then it's just all performative, performative allyship. So, and I think it's people outside of those institutions who have been very vocal about holding media institutions or companies, account- um, holding them accountable as well. So, and also even the, the creation of Amaka was through a lot of the, uh, my research at the ways I was speaking to a lot of different women who have had a lot of frustration around the representation of media as well, and trying to understand what do they want, what do they want to see as well, as well as the kind of different, not only primary research, but secondary research as well, to discussions around Twitter or academic research as well, and how that really informed the way I want to to build this company to make sure that it's inherently representative of the issues and concerns and needs of, yeah. of our community as a whole. So I guess that would be my answer to that question.
0: It's good one. Yeah. And it, it actually really you do a wonderful job segueing into our next questions because the final question we wanted to ask you is specific to us being critical audiences and consumers of media. We're putting that I guess I don't want to put the the burden because it's not a burden. It's like, you know, a a decision that we all need to make to make ourselves a more equitable and beautiful, wonderful world where people can live in, right? What role should we as these audiences have in calling out this idea of misrepresentation, of lack thereof? Do you think that there are any actions that we can take as consumers that can be meaningful to pushing this change, to and so to speak, amplifying what you are doing <laughs> because you are amplifying the other the voices of other people? So what, what can we do? <sighs>
2: I would say what what consumers what can consumers do? I think definitely continuing apply pressure on, mm. uh, on media companies as well and making sure that whatever they're doing or amplifying from a brand marketing perspective is reflected in a, in a structural way as well so mm. these discussions around again like pull up for change campaign or making sure that you're challenging a lot of media institutions or or companies as well in terms of their internal structures and the way they're treating and discussing diversity as well I think is important I think also kind of having more of a collaborative relationship with consumers is important and like something I'd love to, to do more of is again, having these continuous cooperative discussions with for example our audience or consumers or readers on understanding what do they want to hear, what do they want to, what are they frustrated about, what are they not happy with, and kind of using those learnings to apply that internally as well as externally as well. And media isn't I think before uh, social media, it was kind of these media creative industries are these cultural intermediaries in the sense that they're the ones dictating culture. They're the ones dictating what is in and what is out and what how you should behave and what you shouldn't do as well. And then I think social media has amplified the fact that that's no longer the case. It cannot be this top-down relationship. It is It, it is this kind of collaborative, integrated community with consumers and with people as well. And I think if media entities are still behaving as if they're in a silo and have this sense of like living in this ivory tower of saying what what is in and what is out and what is true and what isn't, I, I don't think that you'll be able to exist in this current media la- landscape for long because people are going to always be, and consumers are always inherently critical. I think there was always this assumption from either advertising or marketing or media that consumers or audiences are, are idiots and don't know what they want, which is completely not true. And so I think having that co- uh, collaborative approach and having and making sure that consumers are continuously applying pressure on these institutions, I think is something that is, is definitely needed in my opinion. Then, I think also ways to figure out how to get more readers and consumers involved in the production application and dissemination of, of content or, or editorial stories as well. Like, How are they involved in developing the issues around representation? Uh, as well is it that is it kind of like having more um audience contributors or is it having them more involved in the production standpoint um i don't know i don't have all the answers but i definitely would say those those are off the, the top of my head are the kind of ways that i would like love to see that approach moving
0: forward as well yeah you're speaking like a true strategist you yeah <laughs> yeah yes. i don't have all the I answers but <Yeah>. I couldn't have said it any better.
2: yeah, I mean, it's like it's it, it's a lot. I think it, media is also very it's very dis- disruptive explosive industry as well. I think there've always been a lot of issues around this and as well of a lot of issues in terms of how diverse people uh, di- uh, diverse backgrounds are being represented, especially in a very eurocentric world uh, as well. I think it, there's a lot to absorb, which is why I'm so dedicated to. I have a very African continental focus as well because I think there hasn't been either enough attention or I think there's just been a lot of misrepresentation around how how diverse people across the continent are are portrayed in media as well so I, I don't know there's, there's just a lot <laughs> there's a lot that we need to work on <laughs> yeah. and I'm hoping that we're, we're kind of contributing to solving the bigger issue at hand.
1: Oh, that's a great way to conclude the interview part and I think I honestly I don't know what to say I feel like I always end up in this position after listening to all of our guests I'm just like starstruck and I'm like wow and then (laughs) I have to go off and like goal set and be like have to be more eloquent have to read up more have to (laughs) just like it's it's so nice to to listen to all of these ideas and Yes, maybe these were thought provoking questions, but you dealt with them brilliantly. So thank you so much for just, you know, giving every question a go and, and really answering them. Just better than we could have answered them to be honest thank you no,
2: and, and you all are asking the right questions I think people don't ask the right questions so thank you so much for for having me I think it was really important to, to have this discussion and it was it's a really big honor thank you
1: thank you for that feedback that that means a lot to us I think we it does were doing it well you know we were in our master's and now as we go into our jobs and look for jobs and so a lot of our worries is like, are we giving enough attention? Are we asking the right questions? Does this sound tone deaf? Like those are the chambers the team is in constantly. This is really lovely. Yeah, Thank you. yeah it really means a lot. So, well, before we end our interview officially, we do love to end with a wheel of questions mm-hmm. where we spin a virtual wheel and answer a random questions. So we indulge our audience mm-hmm. and ourselves to be honest, with your answer. Would you be up for it? Yes, of course. Oh, brilliant. Let me just share my screen and spin the wheel. Today's question is, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? If I
2: could go anywhere in the world. (laughs) If I could go anywhere in the world where, oh my god, there's so many places I would like to go. I think sorry give me a second there's just quite a number of things in my no head that I'm trying to <laughs> I I think I'd love to go I really have my eyes on on Nairobi Kenya I really want to, to go to Nairobi so definitely say that's one of the places I'd love to go
0: Invite me on your trip to Nairobi. (laughs) Thank you.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Adora, we could literally talk to you forever. So we're going to have to end this because we all have our own obligations. And for our viewers that we usually record on Sundays. So this is okay to relax and reprieve. So we're going to let you go. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, to share your insights, to do that free labor for all of those potential media CEOs out there that are trying to consider a better way to amplify their voices. Really look (laughs) forward to everything Amaka does and will achieve. And we're just so excited to see that. And we're so happy that you let us be a part of it. So to everyone at home, thank you so much for joining us. And I guess we'll see you next time. My name is Madeira.
1: And my name is Monica. See you next time. Bye. We would like to thank our guest, Adora, for coming on today and joining us, as well as the LSE Department of International Development for all its support, especially the LSE ID Communications and Events Manager, Ms. Jeeba Patel, and the Communications and Events Officer, Anna Dalton, for all their help in promoting and distributing the episodes. Finally, to our team for researching, recording, and editing this episode. Our music is provided by Soundbank, and our logo is created by Igor Kabad. See you all next time. Bye.